0: Do you think Edwin's sleeping off? I think he did that horror-a-thon at the New Bev. Oh
1: my gosh, he got there at 4.30 a.m. The doors didn't open till 6 p.m. Legit psychopath. A madman. Yeah, knowing Edwin's oh, sleeping habits, that was like
0: a year off Edwin's life right there. I'll be curious to see how he's doing. My, if I had to put five bucks down, I bet you he's sleeping.
2: Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's pro- probably the rain is keeping him extra cozy <laughs> in, in his little, tucked away in his little bed. <laughs>
0: welcome secret movie clubbers we are doing secret movie club podcast 78 today which will be about the movie beetlejuice and then a larger conversation about director tim burton thank you for being here who else is with us today hi it's daniel
2: hey it's me Carl Lloyd cruz the people's champion and let me try something america edwin gomez edwin gomez edwin gomez
0: Edwin Gomez, we believe, is sleeping off an epic weekend where he showed up at the New Beverly at 4 a.m. As Daniel just told us, when did the second person get there, Daniel? Seven I, I want to say he said, yeah, I think he said like seven hours later. So Edwin, to be a legend, which by the way, when he called me, he said he was doing that to be a legend, and I actually think there's some logic there. Edwin was there seven hours before anyone else, and then if you know Edwin, you know he likes to sleep as well. So he was up at 4 a.m. And then the movies didn't start until, I guess, 7 or 8 or 9 p.m. And then they went all night. And now we, we suspect that Edwin is at home in this beautiful Monday rain, sleeping it off, dreaming of uh, just how epic and legendary the week was. He's probably
1: dreaming of people around L.A. talking about him and being like, Edwin Gomez, what a legend. He's like this perfect marriage of like the college energy level of a young 20-year-old, but also an elderly person who... <laughs> requires a substantial amount of sleep. And I love it. And Coca-Cola. Yes. And just pure, not, there's no, the red blood cells gone, just straight Coca-Cola. He
0: doesn't like my diabetes argument on why he needs to cut down on the Coca-Cola. He just gets really angry at me for pointing it out. But he doesn't drink water. He literally just drinks Coca-Cola.
2: See, I think, I think he's going to get kicked in the ass for, for a kidney stone long before he gets diabetes.
0: So there you go. So enough talking about <laughs> Edwin behind his just- back. That's unfair, Edwin You're hey, not welcome here to back defend to the yourself
2: Talk, Edwin podcast <laughs> here, Here's the thing, though We would say all of this to his face
0: That is true
2: By the way, we have said all <laughs> so of it to his face So it's not really behind his back That's true
0: And I am Craig, the founder, programmer of Secret Movie Club It's wonderful to have you This week, when you hear this podcast Tonight, we are doing Phantasm and Night of the Living Dead The originals on 35mm at the Million Dollar Theater And writer-director Don Coscarelli will be there in person for a Q&A Which I'm... I'm really humbled and honored by Mr. Coscarelli. Not only is responsible for writing and directing Phantasm, he did Beastmaster, which I found out we may actually have Vista manager Victor in the house on Friday. Beastmaster is one of his favorite movies. And then Mr. Coscarelli would go on to actually surprisingly have a number of later movie hits, including Bubba Hotep with Bruce Campbell and Aussie Davis. And John Dies at the End Was one of his most recent indie horror joints So Don Coscarelli will be there to take your questions On how he made his very first movie For almost no money in the San Fernando Valley And then it spawned like eight sequels And et cetera, et cetera And then Saturday, our halloween a Halloween-a-thon, A Dream Within a Dream It's all led to this Six movies starting in the afternoon At the Million Dollar Theater We are going to be doing two William Castle movies With the gimmicks I think I finally figured out how to do the gimmicks effectively With a 21st century twist By the way that doesn't mean like an LED Screen if people are like oh it's going to choose out it's going to be LED screens that's not What it is it will be three dimensional But I think I figured it out we're going to do House on Haunted Hill and the Tingler To 1959 Vincent Price Joints on 35 millimeter With Mirgo vision where the Skeletons come at you and then Percepto vision where people in the audience Get shocked during the Tingler And then uh, we are doing the Japanese horror classic, Hausu. Then we are doing David Lynch's Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. All of this is on film. Then we are doing John Carpenter's original Halloween on 35 millimeter. And I get more and more I want to say the adrenaline is running on that one because people keep coming to me and they're like, how do you get the print? And I'm like, how is this a thing? And they're like, do you know that Halloween hasn't played on 35 millimeter in years in LA? And I'm like, I didn't know that. So now I just get more and more nervous. But we are doing it on 35 millimeter, the original 1978 John Carpenter Halloween. And then we wash it all down with the delicious chaser nightcap of Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2 at 1230 AM. And then looking into November... We have an epic first week. We are going to return on Wednesday, uh, which is November 3rd, I believe, to our Fastbender Wednesdays. We're doing the Merchant of Four Seasons on 35 millimeter. I just got that confirmed because I had to hunt down a print of that bad boy. Then on Thursday, we're hoping to do a 35 of John Cassavetti's Husbands. We're going to do a little uh, John Cassavetti's Two Fest. We have confirmed Minnie and Moskovitz on 35. That's a little later in the month. I'm just on pins and needles about husbands, which I'm actually a huge fan of. And then uh, we are doing, and we're honored by this. The Guadalajara Film Festival has rented out the Secret Movie Club Theater, and we'll be doing their closing weekend at the Secret Movie Club Theater. We will post tickets to it Friday and Saturday. I know that we are showing Paris is Burning as part of their LGBTQ offerings, and then we are also doing Finlandia. And then I believe on Saturday we are doing a great movie about food trucks and the American Dream, and. We are going to have a food truck outside that's one of the subjects of this documentary, and that's going to close out the Guadalajara Film Festival, which focuses on Latinx voices and filmmakers, and we are really honored that they chose us. They had a lot of options, and they chose us. So thank you, Guadalajara Film Festival. And then we are going to announce all of November and December, which is basically done now. We are going to announce all of that once we're through our Halloween-a-thon. I just didn't want to confuse the two or bury November, December in what's going to be A lot of horror movies So we will announce that Tuesday, November 2nd And as always You can write us at Community at secretmovieclub.com And podcast at secretmovieclub.com We are showing our Cinema 35s on YouTube We did The Lost World this week uh, 1925's Lost World If you're like What is he talking about? We are showing public domain movies In partnership with Channel 35 And we get to interview people And do deep dives and trivia And you get to watch it for free So this week it's 1925's The Lost World Which I love Claymation Dinosaurs. Also, uh, we believe that our Channel 35 Secret Movie Club uh, Short Film Festival 2021 will finally premiere the end of November, early December. We'll keep you posted on that. Anyway, obviously, we're doing way too much, but it's all for you. All for cinema. Today, we are talking about the 1988 beloved audience favorite classic, Beetlejuice, directed by Tim Burton. Although uh, Mr. Burton was already on his way because he had done Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which was a surprise hit, Beetlejuice probably... Is the movie that made Tim Burton, Tim Burton In terms of the career that he would have It stars Michael Keaton Gina Davis, Alec Baldwin MVP, Catherine O'Hara Jeffrey Jones, Winona Mm. Ryder Classic Hollywood, Sylvia Sidney as the smoking counselor And it was a surprise hit Nobody really knew what it was about Everyone was really nervous about it It came out and it was so imaginative And so fun and just So visionary and such a visual And atmospheric treat And so unique unto itself that it, for all intents and purposes, probably got Burton Batman, which he would be doing uh, next. And then, of course, Batman would allow Tim Burton to write his own check and make his own movies really up to the present day.
2: I love Beetlejuice. This is a movie I saw a bunch as a kid. I don't usually do star ratings on Letterboxd, and I gave it a big old five stars after rewatching it because I think it's just about perfect. If you were to break it down, there's kind of issues with it, if you wanted to be that kind of person, because there really isn't a plot in certain ways. I was about to say,
0: Connor, I realized I didn't do a log line. I made the mistake of assuming that all of our listeners would just be intimately familiar with it.
2: It's essentially about the Maitlands, this couple, Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin, who die and become ghosts in their own house, and then this other family, the Dietzes, uh, move in, And it's about the conflict between the ghosts, the old family and the new family. And uh, it actually I was thinking about it. We talked about Hellraiser the other week. It kind of reminds me of Hellraiser when you think about it in the sense that Beetlejuice is kind of he becomes the bad guy as opposed to like Pinhead and Hellraiser. But he is kind of a third party. He's not really at the heart of the actual conflict, despite being the most iconic thing about the movie. And
0: he is a bio-exorcist, so he's like a ghost demon that ghosts can hire if they can't get the living out of their house. But ghosts are warned, don't use him because he's crazy and he has he's selfish and he's got his own motives he's not going to share with you.
2: And Michael Keaton's incredible. He's almost unrecognizable.
0: What was he famous for before this? Before this, he was in, I think it's called Swing Shift, a Ron Howard movie. Broke him out, Michael. He was in Mr. Mom, which was a big movie, John Hughes movie. He was actually, I found out, a stand-up comic before he was a full-on actor. He was in Gung Ho. He had been in a few Ron Howard movies. He basically was making his bones as a a very sought-after comedian.
2: Yeah, Beetlejuice, again, he's like almost unrecognizable. I don't look at him and say, that's Michael Keaton. I'm just like, that's Beetlejuice. It made me weirdly emotional watching it this time. I imagine Tim Burton probably identifies with a Winona Ryder's character the most. And she's just this little baby goth who I cracked up at that scene. I am alone. She's writing and then she like scribbles it out. And then I am utterly alone. (laughs) And that kind of acceptance she finds towards the end of the film with these two different families looking out for her. There's something, I think Tim Burton's appeal is that he does make things that are weird and dark, but they're also typically very wholesome at the same time. I think
0: it's important to know that he got his start as a Disney animator and was very much in love with Disney storytelling. So that marriage of what you're saying of something heartwarming and affirming while at the same time being quirky and dark is almost at the heart of the Burton recipe.
1: I'm on the same train. I love Beetlejuice. I, as a kid, was obsessed with PB's Big Adventure. And in my limited knowledge of how the world works, I just remember somehow must have been the video store. I think the local video shop was like, oh, that guy also made this movie. And I was I had a lot of nightmares with Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice was like a very like. <laughs> contentious thing in my home because I loved a lot of it but a lot of it really scared me so my mom didn't want me to watch it because then she'd have to deal with the aftermath of this fear but I was like enamored with it. It's the type of performance that you either love or hate and it's this weird walking line because Michael Keaton's entire performance is walking this ground between being unbearable like if you don't click with it this movie's going to be miserable to watch but if it clicks and I think it clicks for me because I think it's I think it's a very good performance the grady nature of his thing makes things work because you have to understand how desperate they are that they would turn to this and sort of what he represents as like this in the world that they're inhabiting trying to like figure out what's happening with their house beyond that like i feel like anyone in the late 80s early 90s that wasn't in love with gina davis is lying to you same with Renata writer both of them incredible and you get katherine o'hara's in this too like stacked cast
2: i was talking to my friend robert who's like our age daniel and we were talking about how winona Ryder has been hot our entire lives
1: (laughs) yeah and connor for you and i we had this like the early 2000s and it may have been before that but i can only go by my middle school high school experience but hot topic this sort of alternative kind of gothic fueled sensibility style became like the thing in, in middle school, high school for, and I assume it was the same in in Texas, but and it was sort of fueled like Winona Ryder was a, was a hero in that capacity. And Tim Burton, all of his stuff, anything he was attached to was also in that realm. Um, where He sort of had this revival, probably not a revival. Cause you know, we, I, my knowledge of film at that point was limited, but this sort of all of his older stuff was like huge again, because of this, it was on shirts. It was on, The way you behaved. We had people that, you know, kids were Beetlejuice for Halloween. Juicy, yada yada yada. But I think it really works. I think it's like a very singular thing. Beetlejuice, I think, works because it is. It's sort of plotless, but it. I think it's a tight ninety. It doesn't feel its length. It is just constantly moving. So any of those like things I would maybe normally criticize, I sort of excuse because it just feels so singular. And really does feel like Burton before he was aware of what his style was almost just absolute uncorked in the best way creatively just throw everything we're going to try it all. And I think most if not all of it works for me.
0: I love Beetlejuice as well easily one of my favorite Tim Burton movies and I think you guys have hit on it. I think there's something Unadulteratedly genuine About all of it That doesn't feel calculated In the sense that You know, Igmar Bergman said this famous thing That the reason that he loved Akira Kosawa Was because he felt that Bergman had made Bergman movies Goddard had made Goddard movies But Kurosawa had never made a Kurosawa Movie and I think what he meant by that is Like just trying to ape his own Formula to make a movie and I think that This is an utterly Tim Burton movie Without feeling like Tim Burton's trying To make a Tim Burton movie I love The world I think when you create A world sometimes it's its own Story its own plot and your Mind just gets going on the narrative itself So you're like wow how do these rules work Because the ghosts go to some Sort of administrative bureaucracy whenever they F up and they're assigned to a counselor who's clearly committed suicide. And so you get the notion that people who commit suicide, their purgatory is having to be like a bureaucratic counselor for a thousand years, which is hilarious. And then if you leave your house, you go to Saturn for some reason where there are these huge claymation worms. And like, I'm all in for that because I think what's great about that is your mind just starts. I think the way our minds work, you're like, okay, okay, so this is how this world works. I'm going to just start piecing together why you go to Saturn, why these counselors exist, why the afterworld is this way, and then I think on top of that, there's this just great satire about 80s yuppiedom in the movie. Uh, you know, like Tim Burton clearly puts himself oppositionally to Winona Ryder's dad and stepmom, although he has great affection for them. He's not putting them so much as the bad guys as just being sort of materialistic and unaware and oblivious and. Part part of their journey is becoming aware of Winona Ryder and becoming aware of her needs. Originally the script was a hard R and Beetlejuice was like a murderer and he killed the Deetzes and uh, the Winona Ryder character like talking about Hellraiser. It was originally written to be a hard R scareathon in the house and Tim Burton came on and loved it but also felt like maybe I don't want it to be like this. That I found really interesting. Originally, they wanted Sammy Davis Jr. to be Beetlejuice, 70-year-old Rat Packer Sammy Davis Jr., and the studio was like, no. Uh, And so then uh, what I heard was that Tim Burton, you can hear Michael Keaton talk about this. Tim Burton goes to Michael Keaton, and he's like, I want you to do it. And Michael Keaton's like, uh, I guess on the page Catherine O'Hara was the same I think Catherine O'Hara Jeffrey Jones The gentleman who played Otho Who's hilarious Otho is Catherine O'Hara's Interior decorator Slash obnoxious yuppie friend I think Michael Keaton Catherine O'Hara Jeffrey Jones And Glenn Shaddix Brought tons of the humor to it And I don't think you can under Because they all said It was not on the page And so Michael Keaton Was talking to Tim Burton He was like So can you explain Beetlejuice to me And Tim Burton was like, Well, he's like lived under a rock for 500 years and like he's evil, but he's (laughs) not. He's kind of like a swinger, but and Michael Keaton was like, Oh, okay. Um, And he didn't really want to do it because he didn't really know what the character was about. And they kept going to him and going to him. And finally, Michael Keaton was like, Okay. And he said he went to the costume people and the makeup people and he created that look himself. And he said the only moment that he knew he might be able to pull it off was he came onto the set the first day and the The whole crew was like, juice, 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 juice. And when they started chanting for the juice, because they loved the way he looked, he was like, okay, I I think I got this. And he's only in 17 minutes of the movie. Something that people don't put together is that the movie's called Beetlejuice and he dominates the film, but he's actually only in 17 of the 90 minutes. I
1: think he's like sixth build or something. Well, he gets the and credit. He's
0: really like an R rated, horny, A moral Charles Bukowski Hunter S. Thompson character in the middle of what is like Connor was saying, a, a bit more sweet. And then you drop in just a really lewd, rude, hilarious, like letch. I mean,
1: it's it's commit to the bit through and through. But it's also the older I get, I feel like everyone's met someone who sort of is this person. <laughs> and it's the sort of thing I think because it used to be an R-rated script it makes a lot of sense because it feels like the type of person who's part of their like frustration in themselves with their like high energy is having to keep themselves locked down i think of like an uncle who's maybe like you learn later in life is a big old potty mouth but as a kid he's like very like kind of has to catch himself from saying stuff and beetle just always feel like keaton's performance always feels like that guy that realizes he's speaking, you know, he can't say what he wants to say, so he's confined by it. I think that almost helps the performance. He's
0: totally the inappropriate uncle. He's like the uncle that would pull you aside at twelve and be like, look, if you wanna know
2: about whores, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Your mom and dad.
0: Worse <laughs> You're like, <Yeah>. What?
2: <laughs> I don't even know what that voice is he's doing. <laughs>
0: The line that busted me up this time, I mean, and and it's filled with great lines, but when he's marrying Winona Ryder and then he goes for his little monologue, like soliloquy, he's like, I said I'd only do it once. Who's going to count when I did it? But, you know, sometimes you got to make compromises.
1: (laughs) He almost has like a Tim and Eric vibe where he almost appears like someone they pulled off the street who just keeps losing themselves in the performance and saying stuff that is off script like that.
2: Are the kind of like Looney Tunes, the mask sort of thing where he feels like he's addressing the audience sometimes? he never really does break the fourth wall truly it's almost like he's doing it for his own amusement but they get really close to it
0: Total. and one of the interesting facts was the movie in previews ended with him being a, what appeared to be eaten by the sandworm and actually the audience was furious because they loved him yeah. and so that <laughs> final scene where he's in the counselor's office with the number and like now he's gonna have to reincarnate or whatever that was added because the audience would
1: not accept that he was gone they wanted the juice <laughs> to live so
2: and then they almost made a sequel.
1: Do they really? A uh, Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. I, I, I don't want that anymore, but I would have liked <laughs> that back then.
0: But what do you think it is that Tim Burton brings to the movie that made it so, and I mean this as a full-on, unironic, sincere compliment, so Burton-esque?
1: At this stage in his career especially, and I think it kind of extends into the 90s, he seems like someone who's very in touch with his inner child and and this like creativity that is sort of unmatched. I mean, he's pulling from a lot of, I think, you know, gothic and fantasy type of stuff that inspired him, but it feels super singular in a really rare way where now we look at stuff as Burton-esque as a positive thing for the most part of the way something looks, but there's very few filmmakers that have a thing that you associate with them on a visual thing that you're not quite sure where they pulled it from. It seems like you're you getting an actual trip into this person's brain who is uncompromised and his output. And I think that's super unique. And I think that's, that's kind of faded For me, at least in some of his recent stuff, I think that's part of why I think that point of discussion gets brought up is because when something like Beetlejuice had this capacity in his career, it felt completely original, like nothing we had really seen. At least to my child brain, it felt that way. I mean, even taking stuff like Batman, Batman Returns versus the newer Batman stuff and most comic book stuff, it feels so singular in how he is doing things. I think like Sam Raimi did that with Spider-Man where it feels super singular to a Raimi movie on top of a a franchise thing. And this Burton stuff felt the same way. It always felt that even when he was adapting something at the time, it always felt like a singular thing. I think there's been
2: a few filmmakers who have been uniquely ruined by CGI. I think there have been certain filmmakers who have survived this transition. Scorsese is obviously someone who has endured. I think Sam Raimi has been able to incorporate this really well. I think the verdict's still out on Peter Jackson. (laughs) I think Tim Burton's one of those people. I'm not an anti CG guy. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I'm not at all. I wonder if there's like some of these filmmakers like Tim Burton, who's his older movies are so beautiful to look at and magnificent. And then his newer movies are like hideous (laughs) and they still kind of have the same aesthetic. If you were to like, look at design documents, I'm guessing they would look pretty similar, but there's something about the execution that is so totally soulless and feels very lazy because I don't think this is a situation of him not having the budget or something. I think this is him not wanting to have to deal with those practicalities. But his initial run, I mean, back to back to back to back, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman – Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, Ed Wood. Those are his first six movies all back to back. And then even then, I kind of like Mars Attacks. I do too. That's his next movie. It's fun. And then he did Sleepy Hollow, which I kind of like also. And then he did Planet the Apes. Uh, the Burton-esque something.
0: aesthetic of Beetlejuice has something to do with his tremendous understanding of production design and German expressionism and somehow mirroring the macabre with the whimsical Do you guys know the illustrator Edward Gorey? I would recommend our listeners check it out. Edward Gorey also was somehow able to to marry really dark, macabre humor with something really imaginative, kind of like children's illustrator Maurice Sendak. And I would just put Burton in that camp of Maurice Sendak, Edward Gorey, people who somehow, and it's very rare that people can do this, could somehow have a really dark, comedic, gothic sensibility that's somehow still married to something whimsical and fantastic. You know, like I've said, I just love the world that he creates, and I want to spend time in that world. And I think you guys are bringing up a good point that it's all practical. It's real sets. And when he has to default to something, he defaults to claymation, which is actually really fun to watch in this movie because the sandworms are claymation. And then Catherine O'Hara's sculptures are claymation. I do want to shout out Catherine O'Hara. I do not think... You can have a Beetlejuice conversation without talking about Catherine O'Hara, famous from SCTV, the uh, sketch comedy contemporary of Saturday Night Live. It really stands for Second City TV, but for all intents and purposes, it really showcased Canadian comedians, including Catherine O'Hara. She then broke out in the 80s and just became this huge film comedian. She had an incredible run in Christopher Guest mockumentaries. Then she just continues to like her talent is just boundless because she just ended a run with Eugene Levy, one of her oldest collaborators on Shit's Creek, and you know, I, I would love to work with her. She's just incredible. She's amazing, and she plays the uh, yuppie stepmom artist of Winona Ryder. And you need her. I think the movie is almost like a three-legged stool of Beetlejuice, Catherine O'Hara, and then Tim Burton. I think if you pulled any of those legs out, I don't think the stool would stand. Good movie. <laughs> juice, juice, juice. Uh, we are now going to talk about, and Connor already introduced it, a broader conversation about Tim Burton. And this is the first, but not the last, because I would love to do a podcast on one of my favorite Tim Burtons, which is Batman Returns, which may be, in my opinion, the kinkiest blockbuster film ever made that they gave someone money to like make a movie about their obsessions and fetishes about. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit here. But Connor, before we get into the wider Tim Burton conversation, our social media, media Maven, AJ Greer recommended. and He was right. We did this at the beginning of our podcast and then sort of let it go to the side. We reached out to the audience to tell us some of their thoughts about Tim Burton. What did they say?
2: Well, we had some enthusiasm for Ed Wood. And then specifically Tyler, I'm just going to give first names, Tyler wrote, big fan of his 80s and 90s work. In 2003, he made the best movie of his career, Big Fish, and then kind of disappeared up his own ass.
0: Tyler is in some ways modeling, with some differences in detail, the through line and criticism of Burton's career.
2: I totally agree with him. I mean, I think it gets bumpy. In the 2000s, because I think there are some good movies there, like uh, Sweeney Todd.
0: That's the last Burton movie I really love. But
2: then there's also some real stinkers, like that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie, which is just despicable. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree with you, too. As someone who has a dog named Batman, Batman Returns is my favorite. Batman movie less because it's necessarily a good adaptation of Batman because in some ways it's kind of not <laughs> but because it's it takes elements of Batman and marries it to the things that Tim Burton is obviously interested in. I think the best adaptations are able to take something that the filmmaker is interested in and then something about that adaptation and marry the two. And you definitely get all of Burton's themes about otherness and outsiders. In Batman Returns. And again, it's very spicy. It's a spicy movie.
1: (laughs) It's spicy. Talking again about connection to like self-creativity, I guess. Burton was like, at film school, our first big sort of semester ending project was an homage film. And Burton was far, it was Burton and Tarantino were far and away the picks of a good majority of our classmates. And it was this real discussion into what defines Burton as a filmmaker versus what defines Burton's aesthetic that I think was confusing people. Because they were like, what makes him, what about him is, or what are you pulling from in his direction versus his stylings? And I think that's sort of what we've lost in his later stuff to me. Because I'm I'm in the same thing. I really like Big Fish. I think Sweeney Todd's great. Uh, But a lot of his stuff, it feels like the design philosophy is there, but the heart of what made his stuff work, the sort of warmth to his early work is kind of gone. I can't put a finger on what exactly is the cause of that. There's still some, I mean, he's getting, he gets work and it does pretty well. So there's an audience for it. And I, I've never really heard conversations in favor for it. I, haven't, I guess I haven't really searched either, but it does seem like this great voice is maybe, I hope he has one in the bag. That's just going to sort of be a return to, regardless of of like CG or practical stuff. My big case between those two for him specifically is that the ways he got around things when CGI wasn't available was so interesting because it was him working with other creators to create things that engaged within the story so interesting, like the claymation stop motion work. Or even in like, I just watched Sleepy Hollow for the first time and I really loved it. Some of it, like, you know, the the decapitations are CGI, but they're blended in a way where they're trying to, we want to hide this within it for the sake of story versus sort of a, a workaround to, to do something differently. There's so much good from the early that it's hard. To, maybe that's why it hurts in the latter half because you just, there's some like Pee Wee was such a big thing for me as a kid. My parents hated it because he's so <laughs> annoying, which actually makes sense with Beetlejuice because Michael Keaton's character is also annoying, but there's just something about, I think I'm, I like filmmakers who are not afraid to wear their heart on their sleeve and embrace their childhood. Even when the subject matter, I mean, the subject matter of Beetlejuice is, a wild conversation to have with a kid who's like, what is this about? You're like, well, uh, eventually we all die and, you know, depending on your beliefs, all these different things could happen. And Beetlejuice addresses that to some degree. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe it's a good gauge to show your kid and then have that conversation. That's actually a fascinating comment.
0: Showing your kid Beetlejuice to try to explain the afterworld, your kid would be like, what?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know when I saw I would have seen Beetlejuice. I must have been pretty young, too. Yeah, I was kind of watching it this time. Like, what did I think about this when I was five?
0: I saw it contemporaneously when I would have been 11. My sister and I just thought it was a blast. That's what we remembered. You know, we love the Harry Belafonte songs. We love the Ghosts. It was just like this wild ride And my dad loved it Because of Michael Keaton And the Beetlejuice humor It was totally a dad movie Because my mom would not Have taken us to that So my divorced dad was like Hell yeah You want to see Beetlejuice Opening weekend kids Then tell your mom about it Because it'll piss her (laughs) off (laughs) Sort of the dynamic In the early years After the divorce Yeah tell your mom You saw Blade Runner this weekend And then my mom would Jump through the ceiling and call my dad, <laughs> and then we'd hear an argument behind closed doors. I say this a lot, and I have to say it anybody who makes a career as a movie maker and I somehow survives Hollywood and somehow gets to make their career out of movie making, number one, deserves respect. And I think with Burton, too. I got the feeling he fought a lot of fights early on in his career. And I wonder if you get to a point where, you know, and I've heard even Scorsese told DiCaprio in Wolf of Wall Street, Scorsese said, I'll only make this movie. If I don't have to fight with the studio, he said. If I have to fight with the studio, I'm not going to do it. Get tired? Yeah, he was tired. He was just like, <laughs> I'm like 72. I can't. It's obvious from this script for Wolf of Wall Street what this movie is going to be. I can't put my whole life into this script for two years and then have the studio suddenly have second thoughts about it right before it opens. Like I'm just not going to do that anymore. And so I wonder if Burton, you know, in his defense, is like, Hey, if you want to give me a movie, I'll get a paycheck. But I'm just not going to fight these. Because one of the most famous losing fights Of the last 30 years Was when he tried to do Superman with Nicolas Cage I have no idea how that movie would have turned out But I know that eventually The studio was like, maybe we don't want Nicolas Cage and a Tim Burton Superman I think it would be interesting To find when that happened but I think It happened right around Sleepy Hollow I go with the Burton run through Ed Wood I actually like Mars Attacks But I think it's got problems I think you can Kind of see half and half in that movie it's a little sleepy But after Ed Wood I really love uh, Sleepy Hollow and Sweeney Todd And then I'm not really big on any of the others. But I want to say,
1: have you guys ever seen Big Eyes? It's the in the last 10 years from what I've seen of him, I think it's the one that almost feel like that there are moments where you see sort of, I think, the thing that we fondly remember within it. But then a lot of it sort of falls apart.
0: Yeah. Sweeney Todd to me is interesting. I mean, obviously, he's working from amazing source material. So, I mean, one of your jobs. Adapting Sweeney Todd is just not to F it up because Sweeney Todd worked when it was just a Sondheim musical on Broadway. But it feels Burton to me. I think Johnny Depp feels engaged in that movie. The Burton themes he seems awake on. Oh,
1: <coughs> it
3: worked. Look who showed up. You know, Mary Marathons, you know, can take take a beating on you. You know what I mean? Just, what, uh,
2: Edwin, what do you think about Beetlejuice and Tim Burton? And we'll, we'll definitely come back because we got to do so many other Tim Burton episodes. Ed Wood, I think for me is like i think the best biopic ever made
3: oh most definitely most definitely i agree with you there and like most inspirational movie about movie making it's one of the only
2: biopics i like
3: to me i think larry zirizuki and uh and scott alexander are very good at writing biopic movies and that's their best one and also the people versus larry flint is a good one but anyway beetlejuice masterpiece one of the most greatest most funniest most spookiest Creepiest movie ever made. I don't remember where I saw it, but I know it was at my grandparents' house for sure because that's where I watched all my movies when I was a young youth, growing my powers stronger and stronger every day, becoming a warrior. <laughs> the one thing about Beetlejuice I really love is, and this happens in every movie when I watch, is it's soundtrack. When I listen to a soundtrack for a movie, I become really obsessed, and I will play it for a month because that's how good the soundtrack really is you know word Edwin
0: I can't believe we didn't mention the Danny Elfman soundtrack so now the stool is four legs it might
3: might be the most iconic score he ever did for Tim Burton because come on that that, that, that track has been played in trailers parties like everywhere
2: I'll take his Batman theme but
3: I'll take that second that's a pretty iconic theme too the one Batman score I, I do prefer the most I love Tim Burton's style. It's like his gothic style, almost like um uh, one of those dudes from American International Pictures. For one, in Zapple, uh, Sweeney Todd, that feel like an Edgar Allan Poe uh, book, cause you know it's dark, it's brutal, it's graphic, it's you know Tim Burton uh, is a wild cat. But I don't forgive him for making Willy Wonker. I can't.
0: That's interesting. Do you guys view that as the, his his low point? Yes. Or Alice in Wonderland?
2: Out of the ones I've seen, I haven't seen Alice in Wonderland. That's the th- issue.
3: What about What about Dumbo?
2: Did anyone see his Dumbo? Which uh, I
3: walked out. I walked out of that movie when, when we got to Los Feliz. I, I immediately walked out.
2: I haven't seen any of these live action Disney remakes of old properties because I don't. I don't care. But to be fair, that looked bad in a Tim Burton way and not bad in a way that those other <laughs> movies look bad.
0: Yeah, Dumbo seemed like he was almost trying to engage because he brought back Danny DeVito and Michael Keaton. and
1: I, I think I, I, I have not seen it, but I think it, it was treated a little more positively.
0: All right, Edwin, final words before we move on to pop culture. Final thoughts?
3: Keep on trucking, you know. <laughs> I just hope the next Tim Burton flick will be...
1: We'll be good. I've spent the weekend at a, a film fest. Uh, the Animationist Film Fest at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood. A lot of cool animation stuff. I got to see uh, Mitchell's Versus the Machine on the big screen, which is just a great movie. Uh, the three that I wrote down that really stood out were, um, I think they're all upcoming. It was The Summon of the Gods, which is directed by Patrick uh, Imbert, I believe it's pronounced. He directed um, The Big Bad Fox and Other Tales a few years ago that kind of made some, I think, award season buzz. Then I watched this really great animated documentary called Flea that I think is going to make a lot of award season buzz. It's a very unique thing about a, a refugee from Afghanistan who's trying to get to Denmark as a child. And him sort of talking about his past and relationship with his sexuality and also just his family trying to exist outside of this thing, which is, I think, very topical versus the year we've had in regards to that. And finally, um, the premiere of Mamoru Hosoda's new movie, Bell, which I thought was maybe his best work and is a kind of a riff on Beauty and the Beast, which is his favorite film, I believe. In terms of talking about past and present with animation is this blend of hand-drawn stuff, painted stuff, and CGI, the sort of marriage of all these different forms of visual art that is uh, really stunning, and I was a big fan.
2: Well, speaking of sandworms, I just got doomed this last weekend. <laughs> nice. And <laughs> I thought it was pretty great. It's incomplete on purpose, though, so we'll have to see what the future one, but it reminds me the most of Lord of the Rings. It doesn't have the warmth of Lord of the Rings, but it has that kind of scale of, not just the story but the adaptation where you feel like it's a lot of people working at the top of their abilities to create this giant lush adaptation of this very kind of rich uh, novel. I can't recommend it enough especially seeing it if you can on the largest format you can go see it that Hans Zimmer score shook that room and then I also have been playing this video game called Hades which is really good. I'm not going to explain any of these words, but it's an isometrical roguelike hack and slash. Oh, of course. Where you play the son of Hades trying to escape the underworld. And it's really good. And you can watch me play video games at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz.
3: You won't believe the days I had, man. Saturday morning, I got up. Actually, I didn't get up. I got home from work, relaxed for a good three hours. Once four o'clock hit, actually, no, 340 Got there for 13-hour of my life, a line, a thin red line, waiting to get my seat at the New Beverly Cinema, 24 hours of hell and madness, four movies, one screen, big lines. What movies did they play? Uh, One of them was called The Ruins, which was f***ing amazing, best movie of the night, and a black and white Italian movie called The Vampire and the Ballerinas. And uh, they also played Fatal Pulse, which I never heard of. And it's a piece of s***. Talk about bad movies. I loved it a lot, but it was something. And uh, also, the first movie of the night was Nothing Underneath, where Donald Pleasance is eating spaghetti at a Wendy's. The
0: other hardcore New Bev people, do they get pissed off when they see they're not the first in line?
1: Yes. Yes. (laughs) I break their hearts. <laughs> is that the thrill you seek when you get in line that early Yes, it is
3: uh, also uh, I met Viz Vaughn, yeah, he went to see Madame party for the matinee show. He's a tall
1: dude, and uh, I met Chris Pine yesterday. someone pointed out that that photo of you and Chris Pine it looks like Chris Pine asked to take a photo with you because he's <laughs> so excited and you look kind of miserable. <laughs> oh. And it looks as if you, he was like, can I take a butter with you? <laughs> nah, I was just tired. That marathon
3: got me while I was at work. I wanted to knock it out. Word of advice for future marathoners, don't do what I did. I regret it very, very much. How many of those movies did you
0: stay awake for, honestly?
3: Uh, two. <laughs> I hate... <laughs>
0: Not making the most of every minute of my life. So when I'm in my car, I like to listen to audiobooks. So I'm always reading a book physically and listening to an audiobook. I'm listening to One Minute to Midnight by Michael Dobbs about the Cuban Missile Crisis we've devoted October, as we often do, to horror. And it's interesting when you have one of those moments where you actually become aware of real horror versus a horror where you're in a safe space and you can watch it as a movie. You listen to the Cuban Missile Crisis from 1962, where most people agree, although I think, you know, I know this is the conventional line, but I bet you there's some other conflicts that we know nothing about where we pretty much came close to nuclear conflict. And, you know, I think you could probably say that climate change is a slow motion horror film happening, where the biggest unsettling thing is how nobody cares <laughs> about like what they're doing to themselves and their children. But why, listening to this book about the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's fascinating to just First off here, basically, Stanley Kubrick cribbed all of Dr. Strangelove from clearly having inside sources to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Curtis LeMay is clearly George C. Scott and Sterling Hayden. All of the stuff from the plane is literally what we were doing. So like the six-digit code, the planes, how you would go over, who you would bomb, you know, who you would have to talk to about instigating nuclear war. But I also think it's interesting to listen to all of these smart people John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Robert McNamara, Dean Hutchins, the Secretary of State, Curtis LeMay, the head of SAC, how they all had different opinions about what they should do, how they all had to make decisions. But then Nikita Khrushchev had the same problems in Russia, where he ha- he wanted to do what he wanted to do, and then he had the whole communist apparatus around him. And Fidel, interestingly, Castro, for reasons that are very understandable, actually wrote a letter to Khrushchev and said, don't mess with this. Do a preemptive nuclear strike on the United States states fidel just said they're going to invade my country they're going to kill everybody here the only way that we can have any kind of leg up is if if you just okay us to bomb washington dc and new york otherwise there's going to be a ground invasion of cuba and you hear this and what's so fascinating is i think the calmest people the people who really had to decide human lives john f kennedy and nikita khrushchev realized if we okay this that's it Like, this isn't just about Russia and the U.S. This is about every person in the world dealing with a nuclear war and nuclear fallout. And they, paradoxically, were the ones that went against everybody else and said, I would rather appear weak and not have a nuclear war then bungle into nuclear war. And it's just fascinating to hear how very smart people all around them were saying, no, look, let's just go in. Let's bomb the hell out of them. Let's be the first people. Let's not appear weak. They're lying to us. And they had to constantly be like, no. (laughs) It's just fascinating. Talk about real life horror and talking about having to make a decision that is truly horrific. And uh, so there you go, guys. It was wonderful talking to you. Tonight, come listen to Don Coscarelli and my uncle, David Brown, who was the art director on that movie Full disclosure, my uncle was art director on that film Don and Dave, my uncle Dave will be talking about how they made One of the great low-budget indie uh, Horror films of the 1970s, Phantasm In the San Fernando Valley And a scene was shot in my backyard And the tall man would not get out of character And he he, he horrified me, I've told that story already And then we'll do George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, both on 35 And then this Saturday uh, We are doing our halloween a halloween a William Castle movies with the Gimmicks, How Sue, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, the original Halloween On 35, which I get more and more Nervous about because everyone keeps telling me How did you get the 35mm print So I hope that 35mm print is good I'm going to do a print inspection of it when it comes This Wednesday, and then Evil Dead 2 Which will be a great print Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2, and then November begins, and uh, next Wednesday We're doing Merchant of Four Seasons on 35mm, Fassbender, and then Thursday, John Cassavetti's Husbands On 35mm, and then Friday and Saturday We are doing The Guadalajara Film Festival And uh, we would love to have you And then we'll announce The rest of our November And December Over the next two weeks Thank you As always Connor Lloyd-Cruz Our Chief Creative Content Officer Who edited this episode Also next week's episode uh, Secret Movie Club Podcast 79 Will be As Connor called it Halloween Hangover We are just going to talk about The month we just had All the amazing sub-genres of horror And what we learned from the month just in terms of horror as a genre and all the different genres you can carve out of it. It is wonderful to have all of you here. I will see you next week. As always, you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com, podcast at secretmovieclub.com, go to Eventbrite and secretmovieclub.com to get tickets, or just go to secretmovieclub.com. I
3: know one thing in November that I'm waiting for. It's a special day for me. All
0: right. Yes. Edwin's birthday. And I can tell Edwin on air, and Edwin doesn't know this yet. Edwin's birthday, Monday, November 15th. We are screening at the Secret Movie Club Theater, Invasion USA on 35mm.
3: Yes!
0: Chuck Norris. Edwin, it's been confirmed.
3: Yes! (laughs) Ha ha! Come see this movie folks I programmed this movie This guy But Craig cleared it But thank you anyway Yes So November 15th Come see Invasion USA The greatest action movie ever made
0: And I just ask our audience The next time that Edwin insults me That this was done for Edwin Despite everything he's done to me
3: I, I know I can live with But I'll take it <laughs>
0: You don't care what you have to live with. All right, here we go. Uh, it was wonderful to have everybody. Uh, we'll be back next week. Have a great week, everybody. And goodbye. That was, awesome. that was killer.